Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, and I have two very, very, very good students with me today who have been incredibly willing to indulge me on a whim. Uh, let's do some introductions. Uh, Sarah, how about if you start? Yeah, I, my name is Sarah. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And Sarah, you have uh, a problem with being too loud. <laughs> the office. And, and so periodically I'm going to be putting my hands over my ears saying quieter, quieter, right? It's great to have you here now, Sarah. Um, one of the things I ask all of my students when they're the star of the show, and the two of you are the stars today, tell me where you're going and what you're doing in medicine. Um, well, I'm currently really interested in family medicine or anesthesia as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are the two specialties that kind of have my interest right now. That's good to hear. Um, I know that our patients, uh, they, they don't always get the kind of family practice care that we would hope that they get, right? There are some uh, ways that, for whatever reason, uh, when our patients with schizophrenia go into emergency rooms, they go into doctor's offices, they don't know how to advocate for themselves very well, or they don't have that ability. There's something about the illness that gets in the way of that. Sure. And uh, our physicians that our medical students that become physicians that train with us here, uh, one of the things I always talk to them about is, hey, I hope that this helps you be better at treating my patients when you leave here. And, and everybody resoundingly tells me yes. Yeah. You had, um, well, I'll come back to that. Let's do the, uh, the next introduction. Uh, Spencer. Yeah, so my name is Spencer Nakamoto. Uh, I'm a third year medical student as well at Rocky Vista University. Uh, I'm currently interested in anesthesia and internal medicine. Happy to be here. Oh man, you guys both have, like, I love the things you guys are thinking about. This, this is great <laughs> stuff. Now, we, we had a little bit of a change in the plans, right? Um, that's my very, very gentle way of saying I totally went the wrong direction with this, kind of misunderstood what you guys were trying to do, had my own thing, was a little bit rushed, and you guys have been kind enough to work with me through this, right? So we ended up doing two podcasts rather than one. Um, and I think actually this first podcast is going to be a lead into the second. Um, but I want, I want you guys to tell me a little bit about how this podcast developed. So this podcast is in itself about uh, perioperative care done by anesthesiologists for people with uh, mental health issues, right? Mm -hmm. And yet it, um, this podcast really wasn't the initial direction. So I want you guys to tell me how the initial direction of this podcast was mm -hmm. going to go. And, and I know that there were a couple of things that came together, so. Yeah, so like, at first we started very specific with ketamine, uh, specifically looking at the treatment of ketamine for PTSD and kind of helping with the symptoms of that. And then we thought maybe that was too specific and looking at the articles, it, it was kind of like on the newer end and kind of up and coming. And so I was like, maybe we wanna broaden our horizons and kind of just focus on anesthesia in psychiatric care and see how that goes. And then kind of have a niche of that uh, be ketamine, the role of ketamine within that care. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, I sent you guys a text partway through and said, hey, is there actually data for this? I mean, is it good data? And I think that's what made you guys a little bit nervous and kind of pulled you back a little bit as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we started We started very narrow, and then we realized maybe we could kind of combine our two topics because mm -hmm. Sarah was definitely leaning more towards the ketamine side of it while I was kind of very interested in the perioperative care, um, especially in psychiatric patients and kind of how you have to adjust the way you do that kind of management and being able to see that maybe we could kind of transition from one into the other and kind of hope that there was some kind of niche way of kind of combining the two that we could do that. But I, 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 and I, it made <laughs> sense yesterday. Yeah. When we talked about it, it made sense to me yesterday. Yeah. Uh, today, as I tried to read the articles, um, it I couldn't make that transition work the way I wanted. Yeah. And I felt like it made a lot of sense at that point to break it back out. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you tomorrow why you're so interested in ketamine, because I know there's more to the story, <laughs> For sure. but but I'm going to wait till tomorrow, okay? okay. And then, uh, Spencer, tell me, tell me a little bit about um, how you built this topic. Now, in all fairness, this then transitioned to more of a supportive role to the ketamine story, and Correct. I know that. Yeah. So, so you're prepared 
for a discussion about anesthesia generally. Correct. Um, but I think the reason why I asked to do this topic was because of how the development of the process went. So tell me how you started developing this uh, content area about uh, anesthesia in mental health. Mm -hmm. So I think this definitely all stems from my interest in anesthesia and interest in the profession. Uh, super interested, especially in like pharmacology and the way drugs interact, especially drug-drug interactions. And obviously in psychiatry, that's something that um, you have to be very um, aware of, especially with uh, the way certain medications can interact with others and the way that it can cause certain side effects. And um, I kind of kind of took that from psychiatry and realized, wait, this, this could kind of be a topic in, in a way that you could, you know, see how management would differ in a perioperative setting um, for psychiatric patients. And in particular, the one that kind of stuck out in the literature was schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And I saw that kind of being the main um, main diagnosis that I saw in terms of how you would adjust your perioperative care. Um, and because of that, I was kind of interested in also just generally how all medications um, would inter interact, such as antidepressants, antipsychotics, um, uh, tricyclic anti tricyclics, um, lithium, and all the other sorts of medications that you can think of. And I started obviously very broad and kind of found some articles that kind of went over some of the general drug interactions with um, you know, lithium kind of, for example, a lithium is a drug that uh, is used in, for bipolar disorder and used as treatment. And uh, one of the things that they kept mentioning was how it kind of decreased um, the anesthetic and it's kind of its use during, during, um, during the operation. So what you could, kind of would have to do is based off of that information kind of, um, you know, adjust the way that you administer the anesthetic and maybe chose different ones depending on the medications that these patients were taking on a, a regular basis. I, I saw that as well. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at the references to understand how that was developed, I, I was a little bit surprised. I can't remember if that was one of the references that was citing a textbook or another article that was a review article. Yeah. <laughs> Did you t talk to me about that? Yeah, so that was another thing that was a little bit frustrating about trying to find, you know, good articles and studies that kind of went over um, why we adjust these medications for the way they did. But it seems as a lot of these review articles were just referencing other review articles, and I couldn't really get to the bottom of where they were getting this data or where they were getting this this idea to, you know, adjust based off of these uh, these certain medications. And it was really quite frustrating to not be able to find good, hard studies that were able to kind of back up these claims that they were making. I, I was shocked by this, yeah. right? I was, um, I, I looked at these articles and I went down to the review article and the first thing I found is that they were citing a textbook. And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't think that usually happens, right? Yeah, exactly. that, that, that usually doesn't happen. Um, I, I did notice a pattern. In fact, I'm pretty sure that a couple of the review articles that I looked at had almost the exact same language about some of the medications, mm -hmm. right? So it would talk about lithium or it would talk about antipsychotic medications. And it was almost like the, the article had lifted a paragraph from some other article that was almost inevitably labeled something about considerations on in yeah. anesthesia, right? That considerations word was, it was even like that was plagiarized. I mean, I, I'm not saying that anybody... <laughs> plagiarized anything that's a very serious allegation right but but it seemed like it was very formulaic right that it was the same article over and over and over mm -hmm. and maybe updated a little bit but not updated with case reports not updated with case series not updated with um case reports mm -hmm. and and so you and i had this very fascinating discussion which was uh these articles suck <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah we were a little surprised by that now i want to i want to change gears just a little bit because I think one of the things that I'm always surprised by is how the literature in every field is different, mm -hmm. right? I, I remember uh, when we did the podcast on uh, orthopedic injuries and the psychological effects on, on young athletes, right? I was very surprised that there's actually data on that, first of all, and that the data seemed to be driven largely by psychologists who were looking at how kids were functioning after maybe losing the ability to uh, function competitively in a sport where they mm -hmm. have been competitive in the past, right? 
that was one way. The, the data, we, we, it took us a while to figure out how the data was collected, how it was reviewed, yeah. what the sense of the literature is. And I think we had the same issue here, right? Um, I shared with you an article that I thought was kind of interesting. Yes. Um, do you want to yeah, comment on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, this article, I thought, kind of, it kind of, when Dr. Roundy shared it with me, I was a little kind of surprised um, where he kind of wanted me to go with this article. And then I started to realize that this article was pretty much explaining the dilemma we were having and how in anesthesia, in anesthesia, or anesthesia there's this kind of almost overwhelming amount of, I guess, research by using just case reports. And there's not a ton of data behind, you know, double-blind, randomized control trials, um, especially with perioperative care. And it kind of threw us off in terms of being able to come to these, like, you know, concrete decisions or concrete, I guess, conclusions. Data. Conclusions, data, data that exactly. help us guide. I want to I change gears again just a little bit. Yeah. So so this article, who is the article? Uh, uh, who's the author on that? Do you remember? Vu, I believe. Vu, Michelle Vu and Guy Weinberg, um, they made the case that the case reports are a valuable part of, of furthering the knowledge in, in anesthesia. And yeah. I think it made sense, right? Definitely. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of the things that we read were case reports, but we really struggled to find case reports that backed up the, here's how you practice anesthesia. Yes. I'm not an anesthesiologist. I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn a lot of information about the overlap between medication, psychiatric medications, and anesthesia, right? We hear about some things with uh, serotonin syndrome. We've heard that neuroleptic malignant syndrome might have something in common with um, malignant. malignant hypertension, which is a, uh, an anesthesia concern, right? By the way, uh, did you find anything in your world that overlaps those two or speaks to either of those two issues, Sarah? Um, this is totally on the spot, yeah. though, too. <laughs> yes, just let me... Come back to me. In a yeah, so I will we'll say one thing though. Yeah. I, just to just to correct, I believe you said malignant hypertension. I think malignant, malignant hyperthermia. hyperthermia is, Thank you. Yeah, just. Yeah. I appreciate that because yeah. I, I, there's nothing worse than having to go back and <laughs> say, okay, when I said this, it was totally wrong. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it when students say, uh, did you mean that? And please, yeah, feel free to correct us as well. <laughs> um, so did did you find that? So the yes. general impression. So um, what do you need to know? for malignant hyperthermia or NMS, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, for the shelf exam? What helps you with that? All right, so malignant hyperthermia, it's usually um, patient presents about like right after surgery with, or right after being induced with anesthesia with high temperature of like 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and they'll have some tachycardia, some, uh, some electrolyte abnormalities like hyperkalemia, and then also some muscle rigidity. I think the rigidity is impressive too, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, mo mostly in the like masseter muscles, what they're, they're really? saying. Interesting, masseter I didn't muscle. know that. Um, and then some dark urine, soon after um, And that's from the seizure. protein breakdown in the muscles, is that right? Yeah. Okay, so myoglobin yeah. chains. Yeah. And then uh, quite often they'll talk about treatment. Mm-hmm, uh, So Excellent. Dantrolene is the treatment that you usually get tested on, like what do you do, what do you give, but um, uh, immediate respiratory or ventilatory support with intubation. And then I think the other uh, thing that I read often, although it's less likely an answer, Mm -hmm. is stop the agent that might be offending. So For if you sure. have somebody that's being induced in anesthesia, mm -hmm. you stop the process right then, right? Yeah. And and I think there are some challenges um, in separating the two. We looked at an interesting article. Spencer, did you want to comment on that one? Um, yeah, so the article was kind of talking about the differences between, um, or I guess being able to tell the difference between malignant hypothermia and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of give a little background of what neuro neuroleptic malignant syndrome is, some of the main signs and symptoms you'll see is um, a patient who's on antipsychotics and they will usually pre present with a fever, um, some confusion, some generalized muscle, muscle rigidity, as well as just, you know, abnormal vital signs or diaphoresis. Um, and that's a kind of a a very heavily tested topic, I believe, on, on I think of it as 
autonomic escalation, mm -hmm. muscle stiffness. So we're checking CK levels to see if uh, you're having breakdown of muscle, not 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 MBCK, so not the heart, yeah. right? But just uh, myoglobin uh, breakdown that gives us CK, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And then we're also looking for dark urine. Yeah. Right. So, so those are the things we see. We immediately stop the antipsychotic, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And dantrolene, I think, is also an answer. Is that also correct? Also correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I'm CK. Yeah, creatine kinase. Yeah, I think. I, yeah. Yeah. So actually, they talk about speaking of that. They talk about that a little bit in the study, about how um, how like the creatine. They they did this. They found this patient who was. Um, so he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, and he was had no, I guess, particular family history of anything else, um, in particular malignant hypothermia, which I guess can run um, in families, which is something I, I learned. Um, but his creatine kinase was high, and they were, he was going under surgery, so they you know induced him with propofol and also administered sevoflurane um, during surgery. And one of the main things that uh, it seems like they like to check is the end tidal CO2 to kind of help help them kind of figure out what the problem is. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of talk a little bit about that in the study. Um, but it seemed it, kind of the, the main discussion was it's actually really hard to kind of differentiate just sure based off of end tidal CO2 and, you know, if they have like temperature elevation or anything like that. And that's kind of the, the really hard to say. But it, do, it seems like... <laughs> The, the main way that you're able to tell is by doing a muscle biopsy, which obviously isn't super... Uh, Interesting. And that's that's how you tell the difference between malignant hyperthermia and neuroleptic exactly. malignant syndrome. I yeah. didn't know that. Um, and I, I suspect that at some point we'll learn more about the genetics of those two. Mm -hmm. One of the things I looked for... So we, we spend, a, I think, a fair amount of time trying to find specific data about... Uh, patient subsets and specific outcomes. So one of the things I did Google trying to look for in Google Scholar was any association between NMS mm -hmm. and malignant hyperthermia. I couldn't find anything. I, I looked for uh, searches that might talk about schizophrenia and increased risk of uh, malignant hyperthermia mm -hmm. during surgery. I couldn't find anything along those yeah. lines. So. One of the things I've enjoyed most in the podcast, and I want to pull this in even though yeah. it will be part of the segue to the next topic, uh, discovery of ketamine. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, one of the um, anesthetic agents that is used. It's a dissociative anesthetic. And mm -hmm. how do we know it's a dissociative anesthetic? How did they come up with that name? First of all, I'm going to go even further back. I, th I think, Sarah, you're the one that did the legwork on... No. Or was oh, it? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so good. So, so, Spencer, tell me about... Just ketamine and PCP. Yeah. Tell me, yeah, I love these yeah. stories. I, I, I read it to uh, the Southeast <laughs> unit. I'm helping cover up there. Yeah. And I read the story kind of the way you had blocked it out. Uh -huh. I think it's such a cool story. So tell me about... Yeah. How did we get ketamine? Yeah, it's, it's such... It's, to me, it's such a cool story. So... Um, ketamine pretty much started with the discovery of PCP, and PCP was discovered in 1956, and um, also known PCP is also known as fencyclidine, and it was invented for the use as a general anesthetic, but unfortunately there was a lot of side effects, um, a lot of psychotic symptoms that were lasting hours after operations, and Park Davis Pharmaceutical Company, which was the company that kind of um, brought about fencyclidine and its use, was like, oh, okay, I, I, we, we kind of have to take this off the shelves because <laughs> there's a little, there's kind of some problems we got. And they decided, okay, we got we to gotta figure this out. So we went, so they decided to go to this, this um, organic chemist named Calvin L. Stevens, and they were just on their hands and knees, hey, please help us improve this, this, this fencyclidine. We need it to be a faster-acting anesthetic, and we need to be able to have it be rapidly removed after infusion and, and be able to you know, prevent these long-lasting effects. So Dr. Stevens, he went to work, goes to his lab, and he creates a bunch of different PCP derivatives. And he found one that was pretty effective in sedating monkeys and rats, and, <laughs> which is very, you know. That's where, yeah, where we start. Yeah, exactly. you got to start, so start somewhere. And um, there was a, I think the, it was like CI-587 or some, some name that they had, but they obviously renamed it to ketamine um, based on kind of the organic structure of it. So they decided, you know what? It worked in monkeys and rats. Let's take it to humans. So they uh, went to the Jackson Prison in Michigan. Okay, so I, go ahead. I just think that like they 
kind of just jumped the gun and was like, we're testing in humans and let's, <laughs> yeah. let's go to a prison. I just think that is just the times. How do you, how does know. that work? I know. And did, it, did they say kind of how that process was? Now, this is the 60s, is that so, right? Yeah, 1964. 64, so this is... Uh, a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to point out this was before I was born. No. <laughs> uh, so so they go to the prison yeah. and they start, as I read your notes, they start escalating the dose of mm -hmm. ketamine to the inmates. Correct, yeah. So they just start giving them, they start really, I think they start pretty small from, from what I've, I've read. They start really small and they started to kind of increase the doses over time and they kept track of the, these, these, um, these prisoners and they, they all kind of were describing this out-of-body, dreamlike experience where they, you know, they couldn't really feel their limbs and they kind of were just a little bit, couldn't really, I mean, it was very out-of-body experience. I guess that's the only way, really, real way to put it. And it sounds like because of this, it kind of, ketamine has now become that quote-unquote dissociative anesthetic that people know it as. Yeah, I, I was, I, I, it's weird where these names come from, right? Mm -hmm. If you listen to the Atypical Antidepressant podcast, that name has everything to do with trying to understand why you might use one of these treatments that was for tuberculosis that was not terribly safe. It was liver toxic. And so mm -hmm. you only wanted to use this <laughs> monoamine oxidase inhibitor molecule that treated tuberculosis in in this very select group of patients that had an atypical depression. Right? Yeah. So we get these weird names. Oh, for sure. And, and dissociative yeah. anesthetic mm -hmm. comes because prisoners couldn't really feel their hands and had out-of-body experiences. It was dissociating. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So so I think this is in the 60s still. Correct. Fast forward to in the 70s. 70s. Mm -hmm. In fact, is, is it 1970? Mm -hmm. Okay, keep going. I'll, yeah. I'll shut up and listen. No, you're, you're good. <laughs> 1970, the uh, FDA decided, you know what, let's approve this. And they kind of made it the... Uh, they approved it, the ketamine for use as a general anesthetic in elder, elderly adults and children for the operating room, which is kind of a, a very big step um, in just yeah. six short years of when they first gave it to humans in the Jackson prison. So Now, there's another big change. Um, I don't remember when this was. I want to say 99, 2000, somewhere mm -hmm. in there, where somebody publishes a paper saying, we can use ketamine in the emergency department, and boom. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1990, there was a pretty monumental article put out by um, Dr. Stephen Green and Robert Nakamura. Um, and they published this thing just saying ketamine can be used for these really short procedural sedation type things, such as, you know, reducing uh, like broken, broken arm bones and being able to use them in that sense and just for other procedural um, events. And they found it to be quite effective. And because of that, it once once they published that, it just spread like wildfire across across the Took U.S. Off. Yeah. So I get I get these uh, I get into these conversations with my brother. Mm -hmm. He's an oral surgeon, and uh, he he works with uh, patients that have severe and persisting mental illness. So mm -hmm. patients with schizophrenia, profound schizophrenia, and he does uh, a fair number of uh, third molar extractions. Wisdom teeth is, is the name I know them by. He's, he's a little more educated about that than I am. So, uh, so my little brother, Shad, um, he and I have talked a couple of times about use of, of anesthetic agents in oral surgery, mm -hmm. right? And I, I was talking to him at one point, and I said, um, I, I don't know, do you use ketamine? He's like, oh, you know, I love ketamine because, <laughs> right? He lists yeah. all the things. I so... So, you know, it, it might have some side effects, and, yeah. and I don't know how it works with my patients. So one of the things I think we really wanted to focus in on was how ketamine, well, first of all, I think, let, let's maybe jump out more broadly. Yeah. What did we find out about use of, of medications and their safety? Uh -huh. so, so let's start off with, like, antipsychotic medications. Mm -hmm. What do people need to be aware of with antipsychotic medications in the in um, anesthesia? So, drug yeah. drug interactions, I think, is where I want to focus right For now. For sure. Mm -hmm. What do, what do we know? So, one of the main ones that they they talked a lot or they talked about was the higher risk of you know hypotension from anesthesia because antipsychotics can affect you know alpha 
alpha receptors, which can obviously increase the risk of, you know, severe hypotension really quickly during a during a procedure, which is obviously something that is very closely managed um, by the anesthesiologist. And so that was mentioned uh, now, a lot of times. That was lost, yeah, and. And what, do we, what about data on that? Do we have data that on was that? The, that was the problem. We didn't have a lot of great data on that, but we did find some other things that I know Dr. Dr. Roundy, I think, will Yeah, if, if you heard that clicking, that was me just pulling <laughs> that back up. So, so we found one article that we thought was a good review article mm -hmm. um, because most of the review articles were citing old review articles, exactly. were cited textbooks and... It just, or they looked at package inserts and said potentially these are the concerns, but but uh, Copeland, Laurel Copeland in two thousand eight, is that when it was? Yeah, July two thousand eight, in Annals of Surgery, published this uh, an article that we think did the best job of all the articles we looked at it, looking at what is the risk. Now they they looked at antipsychotic medications and basically what they found is. Leave the antipsychotics alone. Yes. Mm -hmm. Don't don't mess with them because you'll have more post-operative confusion if you take them away. Does yes. that sound right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the other part of that is, um, as far as I can tell, they had less perceived pain and less analgesic consumption. Mm -hmm. I heard that. I saw that listed in some of the other review articles. I was shocked by that. I was like, ah, no, prove that one. Yeah. I want proof, right? <laughs> because this is just another way my patients are discriminated against. But this article, uh, Kudo, yes. Dr. Kudo mm -hmm. seems to have been one of the people that has been actively involved in trying to determine what's uh, helpful and not helpful. Yeah. Now, there are also a lot of articles about uh, QT prolongation. I couldn't find a case report of somebody that had died from QT prolongation mm -hmm. during surgery. Yeah, um, there is uh, the the one thing that seems to be accurate with our patients with schizophrenia is that the stuff around the illness, but not necessarily the operative medications used. Right. So mm -hmm. antipsychotics don't seem to have problems with uh, the medications used, but they seem to come later for illness management. They seem to have a tougher time managing their illness. Um, the medications cause constipation, and that seems to be an overlapping risk, so if you're not up and moving. And then the other issue might be DVTs, but these seem to be related to the illness and how you get people up and moving after the surgery, exactly. maybe more than they are about the actual like risks of oh my goodness, this patient is not doing well in the middle of surgery, right? Correct, yeah. In fact, we just didn't find data about yeah. that. Schizophrenia yeah. seems to be the care yes. around it more than the surgery. Exactly. It, right? it seems like after the surgery and being able to you know, treat schizophrenia um, on its own, with obviously the surgery is, is a whole, whole other ballgame, but it seems like that was pretty... Concrete Pretty bad and better. Yeah. The, the one thing that I think did show up in the uh, in this article that we're talking about is that ketamine probably made psychosis a little worse, but it seemed to be transient. It didn't seem to be a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. Small study that they referenced, though. So gotcha. we'll, we'll talk about ketamine more later. Yes. Uh, the other thing it said was you probably don't need to worry about messing so much with antidepressants, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in the data they have, even though there's like all of these articles that talk about serotonin syndrome, how risky it is, it looks like the studies looking at that generally are, if you're following the guidelines of those studies, you're not going to have problems with mm -hmm. serotonin syndrome. Yes. Now, how many of the review articles did you uh, go through that talked about methylene blue? Only one that I, that you were by that you were, were able to send me and sh and show me, and I was actually very we're, surprised where this came from. Like, the, I, <laughs> I was shocked. So I was looking for uh, articles that talked about antidepressants and um, serotonin syndrome. Yeah, and I was surprised that I couldn't find case reports of serotonin syndrome happening, like easily. There were a couple. Um, I think there was one article that we looked at where patients who were taking uh, St. John's wort plus mm -hmm. turmeric plus a couple of antidepressants yeah. that have serotonergic activity uh, developed serotonin syndrome. Um, but if we really want to cause serotonin syndrome, how do you do it? 
You give somebody yeah. methylene blue, yeah. apparently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this this was a remarkable report, and I'd never heard of methylene blue before causing serotonin syndrome, right? That was like, the first for me as well. 50 yeah. patients reported in 30-something. It looks like it's related largely with... Uh, IV methylene blue, mm -hmm. but you're never going to be tested on this. Nobody's ever seemed yeah. to have heard of it, and yet this is about as serious as it gets. So unless yeah. you're doing thyroidectomies, commonly, mm -hmm. uh, apparently this is not as big a deal, but thyroidectomies and methylene blue. Now, did you look up any of the UWorld questions on serotonin syndrome? I don't think, I don't know if we talked about that or not. If you did, um, let me know. If not, we'll keep moving forward. I'm just pulling it up right now. <laughs> if you come to that in a little while, we'll talk about so it more. So, Dr. Ronnie, kind of take me through your process and how you were able to find, because as you know, I was struggling to find some good articles, and you were kind of able to help guide me in, in helping find right articles. Like, how, how, how did you go about that? I, I think I got lucky on this one, to be honest. Right, so a lot of times when I'm looking for articles, um, I'm looking for treatment articles. If I'm looking for those, I'm going to something like Cochrane mm -hmm. uh, database to see if I can find some outcomes that are pre-reproducible. -re I'll look at meta-analysis that might not be on the Cochrane database. Um, but those, those are easy to find. In this case, we were looking for, really we are looking for case reports, right? We're looking for where this has gone poorly. And what we found easily were the articles that talked about uh, here's what you worry about. Here's the here's the considerations okay. yep. on whatever else, and and usually what I do is I go to the footnotes, mm -hmm. right? And so I started going footnote after footnote. I probably looked up uh, 20, 25 of the articles that were not obviously referencing another review article, mm -hmm. and of those, I found a handful that talked about specific events, but very few of those. Right, so yeah. I I was really surprised at how hard it was to find data on this topic. This wasn't, this wasn't a you thing. If that's yeah. your question, right? <laughs> this was, this was uh, something that was difficult to find. So then I started looking for things that talked about well, if the anesthesiologists are writing this, yeah. people that are very bright are writing these articles, right? So there's something there, but I don't know how to find it. So then I started uh, searching in. I either search in Google Scholar. Mm -hmm. Usually that gets me in the ballpark, and then if I want to tighten it down, I'll go to PubMed, right? So those yeah. are the two places where I search. And uh, in this case, I haven't had a very difficult time finding Google Scholar articles, which seems to cast a little bit broader net for me, mm -hmm. uh, that talked about specific risks. So I was Googling um, anesthesia, and I was review, uh, Googling um, serotonin syndrome, and then I was looking for um, any articles that looked at all like it might be uh, a case series right, or a study mm -hmm. and and then I finally started running across a few things but it 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 was like the second page on a serotonin syndrome uh, search before I found anything that mm -hmm. that even clicked for me and that was the methylene blue article and I almost skipped that one <laughs> so so luck is where I found that one but but hard to find all right, high-yield serotonin syndrome stuff. Right. Anything there? Yeah, so causes of serotonin syndrome. Uh, serotonergic medications, especially in combination. So you got your SSRIs, your SNRIs, your tricyclics, and also tramadol. Mm -hmm. And some drug interactions with um, MAOIs uh, mm -hmm. and linazolid. Um, intentional overdose or um, drugs of abuse, such as MDMA. Mm -hmm. Um, so, on um, exam, you'll see mental status changes, anxiety, agitation, delirium, and autonomic dysregulation like sweating, hypertension, um, tachycardia, hyperthermia, vomiting, and diarrhea, and neuromuscular hyperactivity such as a tremor or hyperreflexia. And so, management, discontinue all serotonergic medications. Uh, supportive care, sedation with benzodiazepines. Um, serotonin antagonists sometimes, ciproheptadine if all the other supportive measures mm -hmm. fail. Um, immediate sedation, paralysis, and uh, tracheal intubation if temperature is really high. So as I'm listening to this, I only heard maybe two things that would help me sort this out from neuroleptic malignant yeah. syndrome mm -hmm. and malignant hyperthermia. 
I'm going to ask you to read my mind yeah. what I heard. So what, what did you guys hear so that the helped one, you? The one thing that I kind of took away from it was, I mean, at least from some of the questions that I've also done, was the hyperreflexia versus like a lead pipe rigidity in Good. the neuroleptic malignant syndrome is kind of a, a big one that I think they might test us on. That was the first one I took away from it. Mm -hmm. What's the other one? Um, the nausea, the vomiting and diarrhea, which... So actually, I missed that one. Good job. <laughs> the other thing I took away, so we'll each contribute one thing here, mm -hmm. is the antecedent medication, right? Mm -hmm. So the antecedent medication or the illness that the person is being treated oh, for is going to give right. you the, another one of the clues. Okay. So if you're stuck trying to separate the difference between neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome, and you're only given the diagnosis of schizophrenia or depression, Right. Yeah. You, you are sometimes also given, uh, so the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, um, we've talked about these a little bit in other podcasts, they're very serotonergic and they seem to be more likely involved in serotonin syndrome than, the, than other molecules and mm -hmm. so sometimes you'll get a dietary uh, food that is involved in triggering um, serotonin syndrome like aged foods generally like, right, aged cheese and, mm -hmm. and aged wines. Um, okay. Old foods is the way I remember it. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that we've talked about, if you look at, uh, I think it's the COT podcast we did, um, we talked about how COT has been modified and it has some pretty significant serotonergic or sometimes, um, depending on how it's modified, uh, dopaminergic molecules. It was one of the most boring uh, technical podcast sections we've ever done. Um, we put uh, numerous people to sleep at night with that one, um, even though it was pretty cool to us when we were geeking yeah. out on the chemical formula. So the point is, that's also serotonergic, right? So when you're mm -hmm. adding up serotonergic molecules, that seems to be the risk, and that's yeah. consistent with the article we read on uh, surgery where the case reports of the uh, St. John's wort, which is, I, I think it's a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, so, plus yeah. SSRIs, plus probably uh, pain medications, or, or was it propofol that they thought might have been the agent, or was it mm -hmm. mepiridine? Mepiridine is the classic one, right, because it's mm -hmm. very um, serotonergic, and then linazolid, just in case you haven't been through your um, uh, infectious disease rotations mm -hmm. as an antibiotic that has monoamine oxidase inhibition oh, okay. properties. Mm -hmm. And then I think you mentioned one other thing, and I don't remember what it is now, one other, um, tramadol. Tramadol, tramadol yeah. yeah. So those are the kinds of things you might see on tests, but even when I look for those, there's not a lot of case reports on those, not like the methylene yeah. blue. Mm -hmm. So, um, Dr. Rennie, like, how do you, like, when you, how often do you see something like neuroleptic malignant syndrome or serotonin syndrome? So, so we don't, now you're asking a great question, and I love that you guys are asking me these. Um, I think I've seen neuroleptic malignant syndrome a handful of times, and if you think about it, um, all we use here are antipsychotic medications, and my guess is that it, there's some dose relationship and we, we sometimes go at higher doses for longer durations than other places. So we think we've seen it a few times. Mm -hmm. I think when I started there was uh, a lore that the first generation antipsychotic medications were more likely to cause this than the second generation antipsychotic medications. I'm not entirely sure that's true. Um, and I think the other thing that becomes a little more challenging now is that, uh, if I recall correctly, there were case reports about um, Zaprazidone, also known as Geodon, mm -hmm. causing serotonin syndrome because it does have serotonergic mm, activity. So, so I think the distinction was between the hyperreflexia and the rigidity, and so you might even now have uh, either of those with antipsychotic medications. So, uh, the some people call the uh, second generation antipsychotics SDAs or serotonin uh, dopamine antagonists. Um, so, so I would say a handful of times I think I've seen it. Um, we've seen some times where we have a tough time knowing. It's, it's, it's not like we have a great diagnostic test. We, we have had patients who have been so self-injurious that they can escalate their um, CK. Mm -hmm. um, and when that CK is uh, elevated, you, know, you start wondering, okay, they're confused. Is that the psychosis or is that maybe the high-dose antipsychotic medication? Mm -hmm. and, and that becomes, you know, um, Cam, uh, a previous student who went through here, has often talked about uh, things that he sees in the ER as a physician or will see as a physician. He was a fourth-year mm -hmm. student at the time and he said, these are clinical diagnoses. Right, you, you have laboratory data that can help you, but it's still a clinical diagnosis. And, and for me, that can be challenging because mm -hmm. I, I, 
I get paralyzed by uncertainty sometimes with this. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And it seems like even with the case report that we were just reading on, trying to differentiate between malignant hyperthermia and neuroleptic malignant syndrome, obviously was not a very easy task for them either. So. No. Kind of getting back to, to sort of the train, I do like those questions, but getting back a little bit to the train or the flow of this podcast, one of the case reports we saw about, so, so we talked about schizophrenia medications, mm -hmm. we talked about antidepressant medications, and I want to talk about anti-epileptics next. Mm -hmm. But I just want to point out that one of the most compelling case reports we saw was a man in India who had some sort of implant in his hip that had to be removed. Uh, and the case report documented that this 72-year-old man had had a previous history of neuroleptic malignant syndrome, mm. and uh, it had been so concerning that they were hesitant to give him more medications even though he was agitated. They basically took him by force to surgery, and the surgery was completely uneventful. <laughs> right, yep. and then they wrote up a case report about all the things you have to watch out for yeah. that are hypothetical, right? Um, so and I think that's pretty pretty consistent with what we read. Definitely. Um, the one thing that seemed like there was harder data to figure out was the mood stabilizers, right? Mm -hmm. Lithium you talked about already. Uh, I won't go back into that one because I don't think there's a lot of data for that. The other thing that they talked about were the anti-epileptics. Now, the anti-epileptics yeah. are so diverse. I don't think that there's uh, a single mechanism of action that clearly describes the different classes. Mm -hmm. um, I know we read uh, one article that talked about an overdose of lamotrigine being unreversible by uh, ketamine, right? Mm -hmm. it, ketamine didn't work in that case. Um, but generally speaking, I think the only thing I consistently found was we all know that people that are on anti-epileptics seem to come out a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. But did you see a lot of data on that? Um, no, but there, I, d I didn't see a lot of data on what you mentioned, but um, on one of the studies that did kind of, it did talk about how anti-epileptics, uh, people who are on anti-epileptics were affected by the propofol dosing mm -hmm. and how um, in particular like Valproid and um, was, they thought that it kind of reduces the propofol dose requirement. So I wonder if um, maybe that kind of affected the way? Well, it was interesting because a lot of the articles talked about this hypothetical um, protein binding issue that I assume yeah. is in the PI, right? But I think one of the articles that we looked at actually did plasma uh, GC levels, GC levels of the plasma mm -hmm. gas chromatic, chromatic chromatography. And what they said was that the blood levels of propofol were the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that the sedation was still longer, right? Mm -hmm. There's something that's not blood level related yeah. that seems to affect the antipsychotic medication. So, so, so I was intrigued by that article, and I thought, you know, at some point we'll have a better understanding of the pharmacokinetics of antiepileptics potentially, mm -hmm. because we understand how they uh, work with uh, propofol. Um, but I thought it was a fascinating article because a lot of articles talked about yeah, unbound protein amounts yeah. because, but yet. That wasn't the factor. Exactly. It was mm -hmm. weird. Um, so so anti-epileptics, I didn't see anything about discontinuation, continuation. Mm -hmm. yeah. But there does, like I said, there does seem to be a lot in there about um, something that seems to be very well known, which is that quite often you'll have patients that are slower coming out of anesthesia with yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so those are the three main classes, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and mood stabilizers that, that I saw. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's any other classes that you remember reading about. Um, not, not ones that I could find good studies on, um, but there were obviously they did, you know, talk hypothetically of certain medications to look out for, um, such as uh, like lithium, for example, but no, no good, I guess, real data that I could seem to find. So let's talk about ketamine for just a moment longer um, in preparation for tomorrow. Yes. So tomorrow we're going to talk about ketamine and PTSD. I'm kind of excited about that. I shared with the two of you an article from uh, that was it was read at the American Psychiatric Association meetings, I believe in Chicago in 1964. And I don't remember this because I read it 20 years ago. I remember this because I think that's what I read this morning as we were uh, doing last minute preparation for this podcast. Uh, this was by a guy named Dr. Luby, who um, I'm not entirely sure how he got into this, but he spent a lot of time looking at models for schizophrenia. Did you read the Luby article oh, by I, any chance? Did either of you or skim I through it? it? Parts of it, yeah. yeah. All right, so I'll give you the highlights, and yeah. if there's something I missed, tell me. 
um, he talked about possible models for schizophrenia and how we might start looking at sorting it out. And uh, he talked about how they had done sensory dep deprivation um, and how that affected people. He mm -hmm. talked about, um, was it sleep deprivation in this yes, one as well? Sleep, yeah. and, and how that affected people. And then he talked about ketamine and he said, if you really want to look at something that looks like ketamine or looks like schizophrenia, it's people yeah. ketamine, mm -hmm. right? Now we talk about the dopamine hypothesis. If you um, listen back, I believe one of the first podcasts we did um, was uh, the pathophysiology of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, that was a student that helped me develop the idea of podcasts. Very mm -hmm. appreciate him, very much appreciate him. Um, and um, this model of, of glutamate, even then he was saying, but I don't know that it really causes frank hallucinations, mm -hmm. right? But everything else looks the same. Fast forward to Newcomer, 1998, because I think you did read this article, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I just want to talk about the study just a little bit because we didn't run across a lot of studies like this, but I think this is fairly typical of the studies we did see. So this is a study that took, uh, I think, 15 men. Correct. Mm -hmm. And tell me why they only chose men. Did you guys catch this? That's a good question. I was actually, we were, Sarah and I were actually talking about this and we must have maybe, I, did, I don't know if you caught it, but I, I also didn't catch it and I, we were wondering why did they choose men actually? So if I understand correctly, there's not any good data about women and drug levels with PCP. And I think they didn't want to necessarily expose women to the drug without having some sort of background information. But I, I do think this exposes some of the biases that um, are, I think a lot of people are hoping to try and address in medicine, which is the differences in genders, uh, races, pharmacogenetics, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I thought that was an interesting kind of view to the past of some of the things that we're trying to fix in medicine nowadays. Uh, so they took these 15 men and they were healthy men without psychosis, without any other medical problems, right? Mm -hmm. Fairly clean sample. And they, uh, what they did is they said, okay, we're going to give these men either placebo or ketamine. Is am I on board so far? Mm -hmm. All right, and we're going to do some testing. We're gonna do some cognitive testing. And we're going to see if it affects memory. Uh, we're going to see if there are clinical adverse events, which is weird because you'd kind of think that that would be something that's pretty well known with ketamine uh, 20, 30 years almost after it was yeah. You know, put into play, right? Uh, we're going to do a positive and or a BPRS, which is a brief psychiatric rating scale, which focuses on uh, schizophrenia types of symptoms, symptoms largely, and then as that's uh, a negative rating scale. It's symptoms of uh, SANS. Can't remember what the A stands for. Uh, psychiatric, no, something assessment of negative symptoms. I think. Skill. Scale for the assessment of negative symptoms. Scale for the assessment of negative symptoms. Thank you so much. And so they did these tests, and they said a couple of things that were in, interesting. Perceptions without stimuli was the description of hallucinations. So that meant that dissociative kinds of symptoms would count as a, a hallucination. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if that changed the outcome or not, but that was part of it. And then they also did a couple of very interesting tests. So they did the Stroop color word test. Are you guys familiar with that test at all? Mm -hmm. So what they do is they flash a card and they'll put the, um, boy, I'm probably gonna get this wrong now that I'm trying to do it <laughs> from memory. So they'll have a word that is a color and then they'll have the color of the word and the idea is that you're able to discriminate between cards that are oh. correctly okay. colored and named and cards that are not correctly and colored gotcha. and named, right? So, um, and I can't remember if you try and do the opposite or the same, I, I don't remember the details, but that was one of the tests. Uh, one of the other tests is called the paragraph test and, and if I remember this correctly, I think I did this a couple of times with the help of one of my mentors, you, you read a paragraph and then you try to have the person a minute later give you back of as many of the details about that paragraph mm -hmm. as you can. Um, there's something called the word list. I had to look this up and I actually went and talked to our psychologist about this, but the idea as I understood it initially was 
uh, it tests frontal lobe function. What you do is, and working memory, and what you do is you tell somebody to name as many articles that they can find in a grocery store or as many animals so you find uh, items of a class. I thought that's what it was, and that might be what this test has become, but it was originally called the Thurston Word, God, I can't read my writing, screening <laughs> test. And uh, so Thurston was a guy that was around in the 1930s, and, and he said, name as many uh, words as you can with an SC, and then I think it was a minute later, you name as many words as you can with an S, that start with an S. So again, it's the category idea, you're naming a number mm -hmm. of words. With, with animals, I think you need to be able to name more than 15, or it's suggestive of, of uh, dementia, so it's an easy way to screen for dementia, potentially. Not sure how valid it is. Mm -hmm. Haven't looked at the uh, validity data mm -hmm. recently, so don't hold me to that on the <laughs> podcast. Um, so this Thurston word uh, screening test became also known as like the Chicago uh, screening test. And so they did versions of these four tests. And what they found was, as you increase the dose of ketamine, or the blood level of ketamine went up, mm -hmm. you were more psychotic, so more positive symptoms. You had more negative symptoms. Some people couldn't talk. They had elogia. Mm. Does that sound right? Am I still on the right track here? And that there was a dose-dependent change in learning and memory performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we wanted to focus like on that learning and memory performance. And these were healthy, 15 healthy men. Um, and so, like, yeah, these would be negative symptoms um, in, in these men, but if getting mail delivery here at startled Sarah, she, she thought somebody was jumping up behind her, which is a good segue into PTSD in right. part, right? Yeah. Um, so, so the other thing that I think I read was that as the dose went up, the first symptoms that started to appear were the cognitive symptoms, not the negative symptoms, not mm -hmm. the hallucinatory uh, symptoms. I think they also commented on hallucinatory behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. So this is only a small number of men, but there seems to be a pretty strong correlation here between this changing dose and the change of cognitive function. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, now why is that important? And You're gonna tell me tomorrow, right? Yeah, you'll have to <laughs> listen tomorrow. <laughs> All right. What have we, um, what have we not talked about that uh, maybe we need to talk about? So, so we just I think ended here with NMDA receptor hypofunction as the lead into tomorrow, mm -hmm. uh, an anesthetic agent that can be used in schizophrenia, but probably at least transiently wor worsens the outcome coming out of anesthesia with more with uh, more confusion for our patients. Otherwise, seems mm -hmm. like you can do about anything with our patients that have schizophrenia with anesthesia, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what else do we want to talk about today that we haven't addressed? That's a good question. I think we hit most of the, the points that I think we were planning on talking about for mm -hmm. anesthesia and um, perioperative management. So. Now, Spencer, you seem to feel like you weren't quite prepared for this podcast because I changed a lot of it last minute. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel like you actually did with the podcast? Um, probably could have. Probably oh, okay. Stop it. I, I probably could have done better. But. Oh, jeez. No, you, you actually did very, very well. You clearly had a good sense of the material. I think I could have asked you a lot of questions about, okay, what did the review articles say about the use of Depakote in anesthesia? And you would have been able to repeat the stuff that was in the review articles, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think that that was the key to this project that we had. Yeah, I think it was kind of a big learning experience for all of us, and kind of realizing the importance of finding good, good research and being able to kind of differentiate between what is you know actual, you know research backed, trial backed um, research versus just you know repeating from other review articles. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, so so then let's ask the question differently. If you've listened all the way through a podcast, I'll ask students what their take-home is. Mm -hmm. What's your take-home from this project? Um, to me, the main take-home, I'll kind of give, I'll give two kind of main take-homes. One, the main one, I guess, in terms of, uh, um, I guess, the, the topic itself is to just be very aware of, um, of medications and being able to really be knowledgeable of how certain medications can interact with each other. 
Um, and also to be, and my other takeaway is to be aware of research and being able to find research that actually backs up what, what we're supposed to be doing in, for example, an operating room. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I, I wonder if we still have missed something, mm-hmm. right? Where, where a lot of the review articles we were looking at said, these are the bad things that happen with antipsychotic medications. Just be aware of that. But it wasn't really presented that way, and it wasn't really presented in the sense of, and here's where it's caused problems in the operating room yeah. with anesthesia, right, mm-hmm. or, peri-anes- or perisurgical care. I didn't find that linked together. I, I agree. But what I saw were these, like, big red flags that scared the bejeebies out of me. Like, <laughs> I was ready to never go under the knife, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Sarah, uh, Sarah. God, I almost called you another name. Uh, Sarah, what is your take home from this? Um, probably very similar to Spencer. Um, just the importance of getting a good history, like medication history, psych history, um, just making sure all of that is like um, good before like recommending surgery or doing anesthesia. Um, and just being aware of all the side effects that the, all these drugs can have. Yeah. I think, and interestingly enough, my take home was almost the opposite. So my take home was, gosh, it looks like it's pretty safe to give my patients anesthesia. (laughs) It is true, though, yeah. Yeah. And it looks like it's not very safe for my patients to have surgery and not have somebody that understands that my patients will struggle with the before part, so they'll come in later more sick. Or the after part, they might get constipated and not have bowel movements and die of, of bowel complications, right? Or they won't move enough and have DVTs, right? So, so my take home was, looks like anesthesia is pretty safe based on the data, mm-hmm. despite all the fears we read about, right? Yeah. All the drug-drug yeah. interactions yeah. we read about. It looks pretty safe. It's, uh, yeah. It, it looks pretty safe. It is a profession that is very much dedicated to safety, I feel. And, and yet the... It's anesthesia, yes. Mm-hmm. All of us are, right? Yeah. Um, and yet, the, the other thing that's on my mind is, is this another one of those examples of where we have implicit biases that are, in a sense, discriminatory, right? So, so it's almost like people are writing these review articles, and they're throwing up everything that's difficult about patient care, right? If you were to treat somebody that, with anesthesia that's on beta blockers, mm-hmm. would they bring up all the history of the cardiac history that patients may have? would they bring up that beta blockers can cause depression and that they can cause erectile dysfunction? It it felt like that's the kind of, um, it felt like that was kind of the way they approached the the review articles. And it felt like it was so much so that you might not even want to provide surgery for my patients, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's so many things that are so overwhelming. And yet the data, when we look at the KUDO stuff, K-U-D-O-H, it doesn't look as scary. So, So there's a part of me that wonders, is this me just making stuff up in my mind and feeling like people are discriminating against my patients or not. The other takeaway I had um, related to the complexity of of this um, field in terms of how you figure out the things that may also be happening. As I was thinking about how, um, how randomized control trials probably need to go, my, my guess is you're thinking about surgical parameters that are already being measured, right? Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, you're thinking about blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, um, uh, patient and how they come out of anesthesia, how long it takes for recovery, mm-hmm. how well they come out of recovery, like you know, maybe in a gestalt way, like, oh yeah, you can talk, you're, you're pretty good, okay, yeah. <laughs> here we go, are you passing gas now, right? I remember some of those things. Yeah. Um, and, and only with time and with case reports can you really go, oh, it looks like ketamine may cause some psychosis, right? So we, so we need to watch for that. Um, oh, it, it causes our inmates to not recognize that they have hands. It's a dissociative anesthetic, right? So, so these things that happen, some of those happen in the trials, right? Mm-hmm. But clearly some of these things seem to be happening as well afterwards. Right, so, so some of the outcome stuff. And so the value of case reports, I think, is meaningful everywhere. But, but it also seems like, um, maybe I'm having this aha moment, you only know what you're measuring in the studies, right? That's and, correct. And with um, anesthesia, you're so intimately involved with the patient around the surgery that you're going to see things over time that you may not notice otherwise in like the trials. And I think that's a a good example with the thyroidectomies, right? It looks like this case series with the methylene blue was probably picked up by an anesthesiologist that was working with 
a specialist that did surgeries primarily on somebody with, uh, what was the thyroid problem? It wasn't Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it was something Great. else. No, it was wasn't Graves, it was no. one of the other conditions I seemed like. I can't remember. Um, in any case, it was somebody that was doing a fairly specialized series of, of surgeries, and they only picked this up after probably years of doing this with the yeah. same surgeon, is my guess. So uh, that, that was kind of one of the take-homes that I had. Yeah. I very much enjoyed this. Um, I had a great time having you guys have this podcast with me because it felt like one of the best conversations I've had in a podcast in a while in terms of God, you know, this, this issue is hanging out there. We know there's something important here. We know there's some things that are we're talking about. And we also know that there's a, some other things happening here that we want to express. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you guys having that conversation with me. Uh, Spencer, usually I get the last word, but I'm yeah. going to throw that to you this time. Anything else you'd like to add before we stop? Yeah, I would just like to say, um, obviously, thank you, Dr. Rani, for allowing us to even participate in these podcasts. I think as medical students, it's something that really, you know, is, is very beneficial to us. And I feel like we get a ton out of it learning about, you know, kind of going into depth of a certain topic and being able to, um, to just kind of learn more and really dive into the research behind it. And I think that's something that as medical students, sometimes we can kind of get too focused on studying for for shelves and for for tests and then we kind of forget that you know this is something that is really important for our future and being able to you know understand research and kind of see the future of medicine and it's kind of just a a very cool experience and we appreciate that thank you my pleasure on that note team out you guys are supposed to say team out team out